Bibles. There are Bibles in front of you in the pew. If you don't own a Bible, the gold-colored ones uh, belong to us, and you can feel free to keep a copy of that. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 11, which is on page 8 in your Bibles there. And then we're also going to be spending a little bit of time in John 12. So if you want to stick your worship guide in there or uh, something else, uh, you can have a bookmark there. Well, just as we saw in the little uh, illustration there with the kids, um, many of us probably have a similar experience in our own lives, you know, whether it's building a tree fort as a kid or building, you know, snow castles or whatever we did, just trying to, trying to build these huge structures, trying to build something that's larger than life and, and trying to see how high it can get, how big it can get. And, you know, many of us probably did that as kids. And we think, oh, well, as adults, we don't really do that anymore. But I think figuratively uh, in our lives, we still do things like that. We still try to, to set up things and to build things maybe for self-protection or for just to make ourselves look good. And this really speaks to the human condition. It speaks to where we're at. Uh, it speaks to challenges that we face throughout our lives. And we've been looking at Genesis We started in Genesis chapter 1, now we're up to Genesis chapter 11, and we've seen the effects of sin, and we're going to go through some of those things, but we've seen how sin has really come in and and messed things up for humanity. And two key questions that we've been asking along the way, first related to the fall, is why are things as they are in this world? Why do we look out and see mass shootings? Why do we look out and see poverty and just chaos in our world. And then the second question related to redemption is, how can they be put right? How can the things that we see in this world, how can the things that we experience in this world be put right? We've seen God's response to human sin and rebellion. First in chapter 3, after Adam and Eve rebelled against God and, and sinned, they were kicked out of paradise, and God promised a redeemer. He promised that the, the seed of the woman would crush the head of, of the, ser- the seed of the serpent, and then God covered their shame. He gave them animal coverings, so we saw God's provision there in spite of the sin. Then last week we saw, uh, in chapters 6 through 9, we saw the wickedness of humanity. We saw the flood where God decreated the world. He destroyed all things, and then he recreated and graciously allowed one family to live and to begin to repopulate the earth. And then we're going to be seeing here today in chapter 11, we're going to be seeing God's mercy in not letting man build a city, build a tower for themselves where they could shut themselves off, where they could protect themselves. We're going to be seeing again how God enters into the story. God comes in uh, with his, his grace and his mercy. The title of the message is The Gospel of Self-Preservation, A Faithless Attempt. And I use the word gospel here uh, in the same way that I would talk about the prosperity gospel or the therapeutic gospel, or the social activist gospel. It's a gospel that's no true gospel at all. It's a gospel that man has taken and made it good news for himself. He's tried to replace God by doing something else. So that this gospel of self 
preservation. I think the temptation of humankind since the fall has been to live for self. Self-glory, self-determination, self-preservation, self-autonomy, self-sufficiency. All these, you know, we could add to that list, but these things that reflect self, reflect trying to live for self. And Jesus, through the gospel, calls us to an entirely different view, a a completely reoriented view of self. So we're going to, like I said, we're going to begin in Genesis 11 here, and then we're going to end with the events of Palm Sunday in John chapter 12. So let's go to God's word here, Genesis chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word this afternoon, God, would you show us who you are? Would you show us your mercy in this story? Would you show us your mercy in our lives? Would you point us to Christ? Would you show us the forgiveness and the new life that we have in him? It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, the first, we're going to look at this story in two sections. And before we do that, I just want to make a brief kind of note about something that I think is interesting in this story. It's, we don't see it directly, but I think it's something that we can uh, infer from this story. I know a lot of times we wrestle, with the, we wrestle with the question about what about those who have never heard the gospel? You know, how can God judge people who have never heard the gospel before? Or we talk about you know, Romans 1, how, how, heaven, how the, the heavens... Nature, God reveals himself, so everyone, there's no excuse because people can know God because of his revelation uh, in nature. I think the Tower of Babel, this, this story, speaks to this issue because if we go back to here and we start in verse 1 and we see that the whole earth had one language and the same words, and this is you know, not long probably after the fall, all of these people who spoke the same language and had these same words would have had words like Yahweh. They would have had 
had known, obviously, about the flood and how God destroyed the earth with the flood and how God gave promises. And from there, people were scattered out with a knowledge of who the true God was. So there has never been an excuse for anyone to say, well, we don't, we don't know about who God is. We don't, we don't know. Well, your ancestors knew and their ancestors. At some point, everyone knew. So there's no excuse to say, well, we, we can't know about who God is. And I think starting from Babel, we can, we can infer that. So that's just kind of a sidebar. Um, I wanted to, to bring that up. We're not really going to get into that, but something for you to ponder. And I'd love to kind of talk more about that if you're interested. We're going to look at this in, in two sections. We're going to look at the problem of self-preservation in verses 1 through 4. And then we're going to look at God's solution to the human attempt of self-preservation in verses 5 through 9. So first, the problem of self-preservation in verses 1 through 4. Just a little bit of the context here. If you read Genesis, if you're reading through it, you read chapter 10, and you see at the end of chapter 10, people are already scattered, and then we get to chapter 11, and it's saying that they are all together and have one language, so it's kind of like, well, what's going on? If you look at uh, some of the clues here, where they're located in Shinar, and then you go back into uh, chapter 10, it's going to give us a clue in verses 8 through 10 in chapter 10. So this is Noah's great-grandson, Nimrod, in Uh, Verse 8, Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on the earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and lists these other cities, and goes on. So this this event that we're looking at, the Tower of Babel event in chapter 11, is related to Nimrod. This happened previously, so it's not just because it follows here, it would have been kind of weird to place it after those verses because it's in the middle of a genealogy. So this isn't happening chronologically after the last verse of chapter 10, if that makes sense. So it's happening in the middle of that genealogy. Um, One other thing to just to note, uh, this idea here of, of building a city, this is not a a new thing in the Bible. Cain built a city in chapter four. He was not, uh, condemned for that. So building a city in and of itself is not the problem. It's not, and it's not even a new concept. So what is the problem? We see here right away in verse 1, the whole earth had one language and the same words. Was that the problem? No, that wasn't the problem, right? They were making bricks and building a city, verses 2 and 3 there, verse 4. Was that the problem? No, it's not. God never said you can't make bricks, you can't try to build something, you can't try to, you know, be um, in resourceful, yes, that's not the word I was looking for, but um, that, was, that was not something God had ever said. What was the problem in the Garden of Eden? Was it the fact that Adam and Eve ate a piece of fruit? Was that actually the sin? It wasn't that they ate something that was sinful. It was that they distrusted God's word and that they disobeyed God's command. What was the problem that resulted in the flood that we saw last week? Chapter 6, verse 5, it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So it was a problem with the heart. It was a problem with their motivations. 
So what was the problem here in the land of Shinar? Again, it's not necessarily the building of a tall tower. It was the evil intentions of their hearts. And we see that manifested in two ways here in this story. First, in verse 4. They said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves. This is where the problem comes in. Let us make a name for ourselves. The word here for name is the same word for fame or for renown. It's so that we will be known, so that we will be famous, so that we will be remembered. Remember a couple weeks ago in Genesis 6, we looked at the Nephilim, the, those mighty men of renown, and who we said, you know, we don't really know where they came from, but, but they were these mighty warriors, these mighty men on the earth, men of renown. And that's the same word, this word for name here is the same word that's used of the Nephilim in chapter 6. They wanted to be remembered, they wanted to be famous. So this is self-glory, and this self-glory stems from the fear of being forgotten, from the fear of not being remembered by history. And the second way that it manifests itself here, it's not, not separate from the first, but it's actually a result of the first thing. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So we need to be famous, we need to make a name for ourselves so that we won't be scattered across the earth. This language here of dispersed and the whole earth is going to be repeated multiple times throughout the rest of this passage, especially in the Lord's response in verses 5 through 9. So here we come across the idea of self-preservation. They were trying to to make a name for themselves so that they wouldn't be scattered, so that they wouldn't be dispersed. So they're trying to preserve themselves, preserve their own safety. And this stems from fear of not being in control. And as we're going to see, this this is um, the direct, like the direct disobedience to God's command to Adam and Eve before the fall. And God gave a command to Adam and Eve in chapter 1, verse 28, and then to Noah and his family in chapter 9, verse 7, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So what they're doing here, this idea of self-preservation, is directly opposed to what God said, to go be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. They're saying, no, we're going to all gather together and we're going to stay in one place and we're not going to obey God's original command to go out and fill the earth. So the building of this city and the building of this Tower is a faithless attempt at self-preservation that is motivated by a desire for self-glory. It's a faithless attempt at self-preservation that's motivated by a desire for self-glory. And that is the heart of the problem that we see. So we're going to see now the Lord's reaction to this human endeavor in verses 5 through 9. So this is God's solution to the human attempt of self-preservation. And I love this, what happens here next. This, this next section begins with the scene of great irony. You see it there in verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. It's saying they tried to build this tower that was going to reach to the heavens. And it was so puny that God had to come down just to see it. Now, obviously, there's irony there because God could see anything, right? God can see the smallest speck of dust on the ground. But he had to come down to see their tower. 
Here's what Gordon Wenham, one Old Testament commentator, says about this. He says, It is simply a brilliant and dramatic way of expressing the puniness of man's greatest achievements when set alongside the Creator's omnipotence. So we see here God's wisdom and God's power in comparison to that of humans. Now we're going to see the Lord's assessment of the situation in verse 6. The Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. I think this is reiterating chapter 6, verse 5 that we looked at before that said, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. God's saying, if, if I leave them to themselves to continue doing what they're doing because of the wickedness of their hearts, they're only going to do worse things. And there will be no stop. Again, here, there's some irony here. Of course God could stop it. But this is showing how sinful they are. There will be no stop to, to what they can do. So what does the Lord do? Verse 7. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. This word that is used here for confuse is the word that means to mix and specifically to mix with oil. It's used over and over in the Old Testament talking about mixing the, the bread, mixing, mixing the flour to, to make the bread, mixing it with oil. You know, you think about if any of you are you know, bakers and you like getting your hands dirty making stuff, you get, you get out your flour, you get out your sugar, you get out your baking powder, whatever, you, chocolate chips, you throw all that stuff together, right? You, you put the oil in and you start mixing it up. Well, pretty soon, you know, where's the flour? Where's the sugar? It's all mixed up, right? You, don't, you, you can't separate them anymore. And that's what the oil, that's what this means. This, this confusion is God is coming in and, and mixing it all together and, and they're confused. They can't differentiate between these things anymore. And I think, you know, just seeing this play out in our lives, some of us have probably had some types of cross-cultural experiences in our lives where we've, maybe you've been um, at a, some store or you've been somewhere and you've been trying to, somebody's speaking another language and you're just like, Duh, you know, trying to use hand symbols and, and it's like frustrating, right? That confusion and just what it leads to and it's, it's nobody's fault, right? Like nobody's necessarily doing anything wrong but, but there's that confusion, that inability to understand each other. Things are mixed up and things are confused and that's what the Lord comes down and does. And we have to ask the question, why? Why did the Lord confuse their languages? And not why in the sense of um, what's he not because of their sin, but what's his goal in confusing their languages? And we see it here in this next verse, in verse 7. And um, there's, a, there's a real gem here. Um, well, we, we already looked at that. But so he says, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. They may not understand one another's speech. And this word here for understand can you guess, can anybody guess what the Hebrew word here is that's used for understand? It's probably a word that most of you have heard before. It's the word Shema, okay? The word Shema is used 1,157 times in the Old Testament. Only seven times is it translated as understand. It's usually translated as hear, 
listen, obey, right? Deuteronomy 6, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. It's a prayer that's recited two times daily, still recited today by Orthodox Jews. Jesus calls this the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God. And it's something that we are commanded to do. Hear, right? It's an imperative. Listen, hear, obey, understand. Don't be confused. Confusion is the opposite of understanding. Don't build your own city and your own tower so that the Lord has to come down and confuse and scatter your plans. Hear, understand the Lord and what he is saying. And that's the next act of the Lord. He disperses, he scatters them over the face of all the earth in verse 8. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. And then verse 9 is a summary statement that basically reiterates that, and it talks about that the city was called Babel. Babel is a word that is a pun on the word for confused. So that word Babel is, comes from the word confusion. It's where the, the name, the city Babylon, comes from. Uh, so there's future symbols of, of exile, of judgment for God's people. This is not a good place. You don't want to be associated with Babel. You don't want to be associated with Babylon. So this is not a pretty picture here. Genesis chapter 11, just like James shared about last week in the flood story, you know, we, we think about the, the pretty pictures of the ark, right, with all the happy animals. No, it's bad, right? It's judgment. It's God's judgment against the world. It's God's judgment against sin. This Tower of Babel story is not like, oh, cool, you know, God just came down and saw their tower and mixed up their life. No, no, this is judgment. This is not a good scene. It's a not a good picture of where the human heart is. But just like we saw after the fall, after the flood, God acts in mercy. It's a merciful thing that he didn't let them carry out their own plots. It's a merciful thing that he scattered them so that they would obey his original command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Well, how do we experience this problem today? We see it everywhere around us, really, if we think about it, don't we? Self-preservation as the ultimate goal of humanity. We see it in multiple places, kind of multiple levels, uh, extremely, right, Ethnic self-preservation, look at the Nazi regime, right? I mean, that's extreme. This idea of, of preserving, making a name for ourselves, preserving ourselves. Historically, there's been other examples of that, but that's the extreme picture that we can point to. We see it nationally, right? Through, through military attempts, through ideology, different nations trying to rise up and and conquer the world, right? Be, make a name for themselves. You just think about North Korea right now, right? The things that they're attempting to do and, and almost just this strange irony, right? Of like, you know, your people are starving and things are like you have nothing and, and you're going to like conquer the world. It's just this like, 
there's a disconnect, right? This, we're going to preserve, we're going to be this nation that lives forever and they look at their leader as the supreme being. That's, that's self-preservation in an extreme, at an extreme level. What about personally, <laughs> right? Maybe our bank accounts, our education, our pursuit of relationships, right? To keep us safe, to preserve ourselves. These things aren't bad in and of themselves, right? We need to have bank accounts with money in them. We, it's helpful if we're educated. It's helpful if we have healthy relationships. Just like the city and the Tower of Babel, those things in and of themselves aren't the problem. But it's our, it's our reason for pursuing those things. It's where our heart is at when we're pursuing those things. It's what our end goal is in pursuing those things. Putting our trust in those things to save us, in those things to keep us safe, rather than putting our trust in the Lord who has promised to save us and promised to keep us safe. We're not immune to these struggles in the world for for self-preservation. We're not immune to these things just because we're Christians, just because God has called us to himself and promised to protect us and be with us. We're not immune from, from being tempted to, to go away from him and try to preserve ourselves. I met a guy, uh, I was in Appleton this week, I was walking down the street with another brother, and this guy walked up to us, he, he knew my friend, and he came up, he said, are you a born-again believer in Jesus Christ? And he started talking to me and telling me his story, and he's been through some pretty rough things in his life, and he's like, you know, they keep sending me to all these like different programs, and I'm going for like all, you know, weeks at a time and they're just they're just feeding me all this information and it's all self-help it's all about self just make yourself better he's like I don't need any of that I just need the cross of Jesus Christ and I was like amen brother like like that's the solution that the world has it's all self I was at another meeting this week and people were saying that you know we just got to help these high school kids feel better about themselves and have more self-esteem and and self-motivation and and I'm just like there's things that we can do to like alleviate some of the problems we're talking about, but like, it's, self isn't the answer. It's not about making them feel better about themselves. I'm not saying we need to make them feel horrible about themselves, but they need a realistic picture of what this world is like. They need to die to themselves. They don't need to have more self-help and all these different things. How do we experience God's solution. It's only through the cross, as that brother on the street said to me a couple days ago. All I need is the cross of Christ, he said. Well, let's turn over to John chapter 12. Palm Sunday, it's fitting that we look at this passage. And If you actually flip back to John 11, just to kind of give you a little bit of context of of what's going on here around John chapter 12. In chapter 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And following that, there's a plot to kill Jesus at the end of chapter 11. And then flip over to like the second section in chapter 12, there's, then there's a plot to kill Jesus. And so the tension is really mounting here in the Gospel of John. Things are really ramping up. In chapter 12 then, starting in verse 12, we have the triumphal entry. 
So here comes Jesus, right, riding into town. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. People are excited. And then in the next section, starting in verse 20, there's, a, there's really a huge turning point in the Gospel of John. Jesus says, it says, um, starting in verse 23, Jesus answered, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now this is a turning point in the Gospel of John because throughout John's Gospel, Jesus keeps saying, my time has not yet come or my hour has not yet come. If you remember back to uh, John chapter 2, the wedding at Cana in Galilee, Mary, right, his mother comes to him and tells him to turn the water into wine. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. That's the first time we see it in the Gospel of John. And then that it keeps being repeated, my time has not yet come. And his brothers are like, hey, when are you going to go up? When are you going to reveal yourself? My time has not yet come. And here we see the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Okay? Well, what changes? Why all of a sudden does Jesus say the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified? Look at verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. What does this have to do with the Tower of Babel? Okay? In the Tower of Babel, God scatters people, right? He scatters people. He confuses their languages. People go off. We're going to see in the next several weeks, uh, starting with Abraham, God's going to choose one nation, right? The whole rest of the history of the Old Testament is going to be about God's dealings with this one nation in particular, with the Jewish people. So what does this here have to do with the Tower of Babel, these Greeks seeking Jesus? Jesus saying, the hour has come. I think this is a picture of Jesus reversing that one nation, only one people now were the people of God. These Greeks come, these outsiders, right? These Gentiles come, and Jesus says, okay, it's time, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to blow apart that, that whole system of there's only one people who can come to God. I'm going to blow the doors off this thing, and I'm going to call all nations to myself, right? I'm going to call all people to myself. So from, from the, the picture of, of God scattering, now it's God's going to start gathering. He's going to start gathering all people to himself. And let's we'll come back to that, but Jesus says in verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then the verse we looked at in our assurance of pardon, verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This is the exact opposite of self-preservation. This is the exact opposite of building a city and a tower to make a name for ourselves so that we won't be scattered. If we're going to follow Christ, this is what it looks like. It looks like dying to self, right? It looks like laying down your life. 
It looks like serving God and serving others. And then what happens? Jesus rises from the dead, right? He gathers his disciples. He sends them out. And then Acts chapter 2, right? Pentecost. People come. They're gathered from all these different nations. And then what happens? Tongues of fire come down. People are speaking all these languages. People are hearing the gospel in their own languages. That is, again, a reversal of the Tower of Babel. It's a reversal of people can't understand each other. There's all this conflict. There's all this strife. God says, no, I'm going to undo that. I'm going to bring people from all these nations together. I'm going to do this miracle where these people can now understand each other. The, the languages are no longer confused in that sense. And people are going to hear the gospel. And then they're going to they're turn around and they're going to go back out. They're going to scatter. But this time the scattering is God's plan to bring people back in. So that is, I think, just an awesome connection of Palm Sunday, <laughs> of the Tower of Babel, of what we see our calling is as the church, to be God's ambassadors, to go out to call people to be reconciled to Christ. And then in the end, right, Revelation chapter 5, Revelation chapter 7, we see everyone gathered together, praising God. And you can go, I think it's Zephaniah chapter 3, there's a, there's a prophecy about God kind of uniting the languages and everyone praising him in one language, Zephaniah 3, I think it's like 9 through 11, and there's this very clear reversal of the Tower of Babel. So that was a prophecy that was going to happen. So now the church, our job is to, to undo what Babel did, to be messengers who go out and who undo that confusion and who gather people in and bring them in to Christ, bring them in to God's people. So we get to be a part of that right here in Oshkosh in 2018 thousands of years after that story in Babel. So it's exciting to be a part of that. It's exciting to see God at work, and it's exciting to trust him together as a body. So let's trust him as he brings people, as he gathers people to himself, and praise him that we get to be a part of that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this story in Genesis 11 that seems on the surface so distant from our lives, so far from us, so hard to relate to. But God, thank you that it is as relevant as ever. It is so timely for us in the day and age that we live. Help us to be reminded of of your mercy, of your grace, of your call on our lives to be your ambassadors, to go out, to share with people the good news of the gospel. May you be glorified in that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand and sing number six.